This week on January 17th, 2024, we as an industry lost an amazing leader and a wonderful human being. I'm talking about David H. Stevens, the former president and CEO of the NBA. One of the things I respected most about David was how much he loved his wife and his family. One of the best ways for us to remember someone is to listen to them in their own words and to pass that on for generations. I had the privilege of sitting down with David Stevens on June 27th, 2017 and recording the following interview. I hope you'll enjoy this interview and we'll share it for generations to come. Welcome to Lickin' on Leadership. The purpose of this program is to bring to you interviews with industry leaders. And I can't think of anyone better to join me than Mark Jones of AmeriFirst Mortgage Banking Group. And here's the host of Lickin' on Leadership, David Lickin and Mark Jones. Mark, good to have you here. David, thank you. It's nice to be here and thank you very much. Our listeners are about ready to listen to an interview of David Stevens. You've worked with David. You know him. I'd like to have you put some commentary on the front side. What are your thoughts on David Stevens? It's cool. I've got a, several different perspectives of Dave because I've been an, an MBA member for many years, and I also witnessed him when he was at HUD and how he handled some fairly difficult, delicate situations there with Taylor Bean Whitaker and some other things and, and came down and really took care of some ugliness that was there. Then to see him as leader of MBA and then recently getting more of an insider view because I've been on the board of MBA for just about a year now, and so I've been able to to witness him up close and personal at board meetings and, and, and other board events. And with every one of those notches of getting to know him better, I've, my respect for him has grown and grown because he is a fantastic leader. The aplomb and the dignity he carries himself with in the way he represents our industry, the access that he has to, to leaders on Capitol Hill and, and throughout our industry is unprecedented. You know, I feel very fortunate that we have him at the helm of MBA. And so I can't think of a better leader to start off this series with than someone of Dave's caliber. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So, listeners, here's the interview of David Stevens. Folks, we're excited to have with us David Stevens, the CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. He is our inaugural guest as we kick off the Lickin' on Leadership podcast. Very excited to have him here, and there's probably no one better that we could have as an industry leader to talk about leadership than David Stevens. David, so good to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thanks, David. Good to be with you. Let's start with where you started in the mortgage industry. What drew you to the industry, and how did you get started in this? You know, I'd like to say there's some divine history that brought me into the industry, but I'll be honest with you and tell you that I was in a political job. Surprise, having ended up working for the last president. Fairly recently out of college in Boulder, Colorado, in Denver, Colorado, which is where I moved to after college. And I honestly needed a career that would make me more money than what I was making there. And it's as simple as that. There was a guy named Brad Blackwell, who was my post-college roommate. We ran against each other for student body president in college. He's now an executive vice president at Wells Fargo Home Mortgage. He was a loan rep for Savings and Loan in Boulder. And he called me and said, this is a long time ago, David. You could make $30,000 a year as a loan officer. And I thought that was huge money. And so I applied and actually got churned down by the first regional manager in a different region in Colorado. The manager called me and hired me on the spot. That's my track into lending. It's by pure accident. Talk about what's the right type of person that should consider a career in mortgage lending. 
It is unfortunate in that I run the mortgage bank because we have commercial lenders and residential lenders. And I find in commercial lending, it really attracts people who major in real estate finance in college and they get into the commercial real estate industry. Residential mortgage lending doesn't have the same traditional pathway. A lot more people fall into that role. In my day, it was you had to have the ability to have communication skills. You had to have an internal drive that would motivate you without someone looking over your shoulder to get up each morning and go out and call on real estate agents. You have to have a durability. I went through a lot of sales training when I was in that period. I always used to tell people, you've got to really welcome and look for rejection. Because if you can get rejected a certain number of times, you're ultimately going to get someone who says yes, but you got to get through all those individual rejections, the no's first. And you have to learn not to take it personally. And it's hard to get started, David, is you have to build relationships with real estate agents. It's what I call a pull-through sale because you have to pull the home buyer through the realtor. At least it was more so back in my day, and it still is to a large degree. And so I had to have really great relationships with realtors that knew me as someone who was personable, who had attention to detail, who understood my products, who would follow up and who would keep the customer, the home buyer, in the forefront of my mind to keep them happy all the way through the process. But honestly, if you can do those things, you can get rewarded handsomely. And I think what young people fail to realize in this business is it may be hard starting off, but once you start building a reputation and relationships, which doesn't take long if you work hard and go out and face that rejection every day, you're going to get to the point where you're just answering the phone and you're fulfilling the needs of professional real estate agents and home builders and others who need help. And ultimately, you're getting repeat clients and I remember when I first started out, a lot of people in the savings and loan industry looked at me as this young, untrained nobody, and within a year, I was number four in my company. And so it is really easy to differentiate yourself in this business as long as you're willing to confront the realities of the initial fact that it is a sales industry, and you've got to have that ability to communicate, to persuade people, and to do the work to build that foundation. If you do it, I honestly believe that there's no better business to be in. I don't know how you feel. I often look back. I've held as many senior roles in this industry. People always ask me, what was my favorite job? I loved being a loan rep. It was just a great time in my life, a great time to be learning this business, and it became foundational for what ultimately was has been a really great career. I think that's a great point. It's handing that set of keys to that first buyer, that really tough transaction, and looking at the joy that radiates out of them, the pride that brings to that. And I think about the stability for families, the stability for the marriages, the kids, and how that just has the potential of elevating their lives. Home ownership is such a key to our economy and also to our personal lives. You talked about duration. When you look at your duration in this industry, you've been at it for how many years now? I started in 83, over 30 years, <laughs> and I'm not counting anymore. So let's talk about your journey to where you're at today. You got that first loan origination job. You accelerated quickly within one year to become number four within the organization. Take us from then to now. Let me try to do it relatively high speed, but I'll stop at a couple points. Like a lot of companies do, they oftentimes promote the top salespeople into management roles. And I took over the Denver office as a manager with no training on how to manage. Honestly, I made a whole ton of mistakes as a young manager, but fortunately I had a mentor in my life who was my boss and he taught me how to manage. He taught me something called situational leadership to help identify which of my salespeople needed the most attention and direction. And then we used something called the management process, which was a way of learning how to give constructive feedback and help develop personnel on the way. But when I first walked in the job, I fired everybody because they weren't like me. They weren't outgoing, <laughs> they didn't have my profile. 
I thought I needed to hire my own image, mistake number one in a big way, but learned how to become a good manager and the branch suddenly lit on fire. We became one of the top producing branches in the country. At the time, the savings and loan industry in the early 80s, it was after the savings and loan crisis and firea and terms that a lot of people may know or not know depending on their age. But we were buying savings and loans across the country, and we started buying savings and loans on the East Coast that had failed, and I was one of the early managers who was asked by the president of the company to move to the East Coast, and I would build branches from scratch, loan operation centers, and we moved to New Jersey and built one there for about nine months, became very productive very quickly. They then relocated me to Connecticut, then they relocated me to Virginia to keep doing it, and it must have been the timing, because it can't be all me, but each one of those branches just literally caught on fire, and just a great pathway of success, and I ended up being relocated to headquarters in California and given a job as national sales support manager, because I thought I had some skills that could be shared with others. It was just a really fun adventure, because everything was hitting on all cylinders all the time, and over a 17-year span, became a regional manager, and then a division manager running, ran the East Coast and ran the West Coast. We moved 11 times in that 17-year period, but it was a fast-growing savings and loan and made lots of friends and hired a lot of people and got to work with some great talent. Had my mentor in my career who taught me a lot about managing uh, large organizations and building teams and having higher standards for success and having an indelible work ethic and all the things that you can read in any book about how to be successful. And it it all worked. I'll just quickly say, after 17 years, I was going to stay there forever. I got a call from a headhunter asking me if I'd consider interviewing at Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac hired me. I became the senior vice president and head of the single family business at Freddie and stayed almost a decade there. Got recruited away by my biggest customer, Wells Fargo, and became executive vice president, head of all wholesale lending for Wells. This is all pre-recession, of course. A large real estate company in, in D.C. called Long & Foster. It's one of the largest privately held real estate companies in America with mortgage companies elsewhere. Recruited me away. It was a great career opportunity with almost no travel. So my wife was happy about that. And I took that job and probably would have retired with Long & Foster. I was president and chief operating officer. So I ran real estate, mortgage and our title companies and everything associated with the business. But I got a call from the new administration from President Obama and his team and asked to come in 2009 to become Federal Housing Commissioner and work on what was being called the housing team that dealt with TARP and HAMP financing and all the distressed housing issues and really a lot to do with the GSE, the long-term future of housing finance and more. And it was just too an exciting an opportunity to give up, not because it was necessarily President Obama or some other presidents, because of the times right. that we were in and to be in the center of, of that was really exciting. So I did that. And when I left, after exhaustion hit, I was came to the mortgage banker. So there you go. That's the, the full litany. There's so much. You didn't think starting as, as a loan originator and as Boulder, Colorado. Was it in Boulder? It was in Denver, actually. I graduated from Boulder, but moved to Denver. Yeah. It was in Denver. Okay. And from Denver, LO, to the White House, advising through one of the most horrific crises our nation has gone through, at least it relates to the housing finance system, and what an instrumental role you played during that time. I remember you showing me pictures of you sitting there 
and we're explaining to them the basics of just the warehousing yeah. and the importance of warehouse financing. Talk a little bit about that. It's funny because I have a picture on my office wall of me sitting in the Roosevelt Room, which is the president's conference room. It's right across from the Oval Office. And the picture you've seen, obviously, is me with the president and Secretary Geithner from the Treasury Department and Secretary Donovan from HUD and all the rest of the leadership that was working on housing issues. Uh, just quick story. So, my first call to come meet the president was three weeks literally into the job. And I'm looking at myself thinking, I have a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science from the University of Colorado. I <laughs> ski really well, and I'm being invited to a meeting where everybody has a PhD from Harvard or Yale or somewhere, and they run international finance. I walk into the Roosevelt Room to the president's conference room, and they have couches around the outer rim of the room and the tables in the middle. And I immediately thought, I'm going to go sit on the couch because I ain't sitting at the table with all these brilliant geniuses. Literally, Secretary Geithner comes in. I've come to know Miss Tim, and we've become good friends. But at the time, it's Secretary Geithner. I've never met him before. He knows everybody in the room. And he looks at me on the couch. He goes, you're Stevens, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, sit at the table. So I immediately grabbed that spot on the table, which you've seen in the picture was the corner spot with direct eyes site with the president, on the side with Tim and Sean Donovan and others. And the president walks in. He's flanked by David Axelrod and Rahm Emanuel and the team that was his senior staff at the time. He always read everything. He was extremely studied. So he walks in. He goes, okay, I've read all the material. I understand the issues that we're talking about today. I just need to understand what a warehouse line is. And at the time, if you recall, Warehouse financing really dried up at the beginning of the recession, and there was a worry there was yeah. no li liquidity yeah. for mortgage bankers. So we were thinking of using TARP money to create a warehouse line, and the table goes silent. And I'm thinking, come on, someone speak. There's rocket scientists in finance all around this table. Nobody can explain a warehouse line. Tim leans down at me, and he goes, Stevens, answer the question. Here I am three weeks in the job. I have, wow. I have a degree in partying, basically, from Colorado. <laughs> I have decades of experience in mortgage finance, and... I start explaining the warehouse line and how it works, and I look up, and the President of the United States is staring at me intently in the eyes. And thus began what was really an interesting time, because over the next couple of years when we were working so right. diligently on so many issues, they often wouldn't hold meetings on housing finance if I couldn't be there, because subject matter expertise in mortgage finance isn't something you can just read in a book. And everybody here who's in the business knows you learn as you go through this business, and you learn a lot. It's knowledge you gain over time. It's hard to be an expert in everything, and the White House team, at least at the time, no matter what you think about them, when it comes to housing finance, at least they knew what they didn't know, and yep. I became the mortgage guy in, in the administration and met with the president and his team frequently on these subjects. For such a time as that, and I was so grateful to have you with your knowledge there. What's so encouraging about it, David, is someone who – does not have the Harvard MBA PhD background can have such an impact. And I, I don't think there's many industries you can do that in other than a mortgage finance. So I celebrate those and those stories. I'm sure there are so many stories we could get into. A little yeah. bit earlier, you mentioned about situational leaders and situational leadership and management systems. If you could expand upon that a little bit, because it sounded like that had a big influence on you. And did you take any of that into the White House with you? I've taken these management philosophies with me everywhere I've been. My career, the, the savings loan I worked at was very training focused. In fact, you had to go through a, a minimum number of training classes every month. And they really promoted leadership training and management training. We'd compete against each other and, and design training classes for managers where the classes would vote on which one was best. And if you were the best trainer, you would get trips. My wife and I took a trip to Hawaii once because I won an award. So 
that kind of culture doesn't exist everywhere. And I'll acknowledge right out that I was fortunate to have that kind of culture. But situational leadership is easy. It, it takes two basic concepts, commitment and competence. And we always talk about these in advance. You have to have both to be successful. So example, when you have a new employee on the job and they walk into their new role, they're very committed. They're excited for their new role. They're excited to have a new job, but they have no competence. And situational leadership says you should be highly directive. And you don't need to be as supportive of the individual. You just have to tell them what to do. Give them a calendar. This is what you're going to do in the morning. This is what you can do at night. These are the classes you're going to go through. This is who you're mentoring with. And that's how you apply that leadership training. But employees go through cycles. And after they've been on the job for a period of time, they realize, hey, the job's not as great as I thought it was. And they're also not as productive as they can be. So their commitment drops because they're no longer as committed to the role. And their competence still isn't there, so they've got low competence. And so the response is you have to be highly directive and highly supportive of that individual and really much more hands-on and meet with them far more frequently, or you, you risk turning them over. By the way, that's the biggest failure of sales companies today is they don't recognize what's called situation two, which is that situation. That's the highest volatile period of turnover. And someone can fall in there either as a new employee as they're developing through, or they can fall into it as a high-producing employee, but market situations shift. They're suddenly not as productive as they were. They're not making the money. They blame their employer for not having the products or tools or whatever it is. They can slip back in to situation two, the low commitment and low competence because they don't know how to deal in a new market. So if you understand that and you apply the management skill, the leadership skill of get highly directive with them and highly supportive and put them on a far more frequent coaching and counseling process you can probably retain them and help them become more effective and keep them as long-term employees. Very simple management skill. It took weeks of training to become proficient at it because you have to go through all sorts of scenarios. But I literally have taken that everywhere I go. And people who know me, some will say it's ADHD, which probably isn't far off in certain <laughs> cases. But people will know if it's an issue or individual that I'm really concerned about, I'm focused on that extraordinarily deliberately and purposefully but I realize you can't manage everybody the same way. It's a game of whack-a-mole, and you'll spread yourself too thin. You've got to focus on the area where the whack-a-mole head's about to pop up. And that's if you spend your time on issues that way and spend your time on personnel, the most important personnel to manage is the one that's at the greatest risk. And you fan and feed your top performers. Poor salespeople tend to aggregate and flock to their top performers because they just like hanging with them because they're more fun and they're more successful, but good leaders and good managers are the ones who recognize that and recognize that's an easy out, and they spend their time focused on the ones that need the most development. And if you can do that effectively, you can build a broader, more successful sales force, I think. As the CEO of the MBA, you see so many companies, and you're seeing some that are doing very well, and you see some others that probably almost inexplainably are failing. What are the keys to succeeding in this current market? And has there been a shift, David? Has there been a shift in the factors that causes for one company to be successful than another in the market where we're headed? Look, yeah, it would be totally unfair for me to comment when there's so many successful CEOs of companies that listen to you and could answer this question easily as well. But I'll just say at a very high level, the model of the firm is the beginning point. If during a refinance market, it's real easy to get comfortable focusing on refinances. And it's classic who moved my cheese. If you aren't preparing 
for that pile of cheese running out, you're going to find yourself unprepared for what happens next. Companies that did very well, centralized platforms, originating refinances over the last several years during quantitative easing and the HARP refinance program and extremely low interest rates in the marketplace. They had some wonderful years with high margins and high profitability. We've shifted to a purchase market, and we're looking at the business models out there right now. We do, as through our, our, our peer group roundtables, we are looking at basis points uh, of profitability and how it's shifting. And the only thing I would say is margins are squeezing across the board, but the best retail originators, the ones that have the highest percentage of retail and had it, are the ones that are still in growth mode and uh, doing so with continued marginal profits quarter in and quarter out. The ones that are having the biggest challenge, I would say, are, are the ones that were refinanced centralized platforms and the phone's just not ringing anymore and they still have fixed overhead that's too high. And then, quite frankly, the third-party markets are having some difficulty. Wholesale is very competitive. Margins are being squeezed out. These are the kind of markets that really separate the business models that survive. And as David, better than anybody and anybody here listening knows, Culture starts at the top, and you need to create a culture of success, and good leadership has to know and see market conditions shifting and help get their organizations adjusted to respond to that market shift. And if it's never too late. It may mean that you have to go some periods of really tight profitability, but you've got to learn to change. And remember I was talking about situational leadership a moment ago. A great refinance rep is a reactive loan officer. They're, the phones are ringing. They're answering the phone, and they can build up big pipelines of refinances. When it ships to a purchase market, a purchase market is a proactive market, not a reactive market. You've got to go out and find the loans. You've got to learn to develop relationships with realtors to get into that pull-through sale environment where they will refer their clients to you. It takes longer to get a transaction. You've got to be far more patient and focus on an entirely different set of action steps. And one successful loan rep one day can be turned into suddenly an unsuccessful liability if the set of skills that made them successful in a refi market doesn't transition to a purchase market. And that's where leadership and management can come into play. So we're seeing those differences now in business models in the marketplace. And I encourage everybody as they look at organizations, if they're th considering career changes or opportunities, don't just look at volume because uh, volume can gloss over profits. And so it's really important to look at the entire culture of the firm, their systems or capabilities, how they view about gaining access to the home purchase market because for the next several years, that's going to be the model that is going to be successful more than any other. We're talking about shifts. You addressed that there are some shifts. There are some changes coming. And I do want to get your thoughts about where you see the direction. I think the system's going to continue functioning. And I would encourage everybody not to worry about the possible legislative reform of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because all the legislators, everybody on the Senate Banking Committee, both Republican and Democrat, are concerned about smooth transition. And the ability to get access to TBA market, is, I believe, is going to exist long-term regardless of the process. I will tell you that as of this week, David, which is the last week of June, I'm testifying on Thursday in front of the Senate Banking Committee, the first hearing they're holding on GSE reform okay. in the new administration. And there's only three panelists. It's myself, Ed DeMarco, who's the former FHFA acting director, and then a consumer advocate named Matt Calhoun. But they only have the three of us. And so we're the foundational hearing, but it's clearly a sign that they're moving forward. We've seen comments by Senators Warner and Corker in the media just in recent days about their focus on GSE reform. Chairman Crapo is focusing on it. I believe pretty strongly there's going to be GSE reform legislation. And I think this time 
it'll likely go further than the last time. Now, will it ultimately go to law? I, I'm not going to give an opportunity for all the Washington skeptics <laughs> to say nothing gets done. But I will say that the Democrats and Republicans both believe that what's different about GSE legislation versus others is it's not partisan. Right. It's not like the health care debate, which is clearly dividing purely along partisan lines with a lot of emotion. So is tax reform. GSE reform is substantive. It's technical. It's complicated. But I've had conversations with Senator Elizabeth Warren, I know everybody's favorite on this phone, and Senator Crapo on the Republican side, and Senator Corker, who's a good friend on the Republican side. And I'll tell you, they all want reform, and they all actually have similar desires, although they differ on things like the depth of affordable housing commitments and things of that sort. But again, for everybody here, focus on your business. No one's going to let this system blow up. It's too important. And even the ideas around Ginny Mae as a platform or the CSP as a platform, that's plumbing, and it'll all get worked out through the legislative process. I'm, I've been working on this too closely. I feel fairly confident that no matter what happens here, whatever transition occurs, it's going to take years to happen. It'll be The focus will be to make it as smooth as possible, and the ability to get a 30-year fixed-rate loan through a guarantor, whether they're called Fannie or Freddie or something else long-term, will continue to exist almost seamlessly. I want to go to the topic of leadership. Who are the leaders that have really inspired you throughout your career? Who are they and what is it that you drew out of them? Yeah, the names you won't know because they're just people who are names of the company. I, the president of my, I won't mention the one name, president of the company I worked for my first 17 years was Jim Judd. And Jim's an interesting guy because he was the president of the bank. He was part of four members of the office of the chairman. And But his background was he started off his career relatively similar to ours. He didn't go to graduate schools. He ended up after college as a Xerox sales rep. And he wow. grew up learning professional selling skills. And he became very successful and one of the top salespeople. And he ended up running a big chunk of Xerox's sales organization. And he was recruited by the husband and wife who started the savings loan I worked at. He was the culture and backbone of that institution. And he's the one who focused on training and sales training and leadership training. He had a unique blend of combining work and fun so that you enjoyed your job while working really hard at it. He believed everybody should be tested, and he would move people around into different roles to make sure they could cross-train. So I began as a loan rep. At one point in my career, I ran all the savings, the deposit branches for Northern California because he wanted me to learn that side of the banking business. He constantly wanted to keep the energy high in an institution. He thought by moving leadership around, it never got stale for any organization inside. When it came to market share and growing your business profitably, he was religious about margins and expense control, which, by the way, is that's the secret to success, is controlling your pricing margins and can, and having severe discipline around expense control at all costs, and something I grew up with and took with me over the years. And he always said, you never own market share, you rent it. And to that end, we'd always be creating new products and new programs to adjust to the market. Now, granted, under the qualified mortgage rule and the Dodd-Frank legislation, the ability to be really creative on products has mostly gone away in this country. It's much more narrow. But in the day, we were able to create new products and new marketing techniques and expand the business and test new approaches. He was very big on testing, something I've taken with me to this day. If I do organizational restructuring or have an idea, I'll often start it as a pilot and test it. And if it doesn't work, try to tweak it. And if it ultimately works, wonderful. If it doesn't work, collapse it. And I think we don't have enough dynamic experimentation going on in our industry and for the worst of them, it's a pretty stodgy, 
slow-moving, antiquated business, and obviously won't name companies, but there are institutions that are still doing business the way they did 20 years ago with the same technology, same management structures, and actually has almost a no-change, no-risk discipline. I just don't think those models are healthy for an industry where we have a millennial generation coming up that's you know, entirely different from the business that we saw historically. But everybody has their mentors in their career. I feel very fortunate that Jim was that. And he built a group of senior leaders that, when I was a young kid, helped me. Jim Wagen, who is in San Antonio now and ended up his career at Wells Fargo. But he helped me in the early parts of my career and was responsible for most of my relocations to take over new markets. But you need that kind of push and drive. And all the lessons you learn are really important. Mine were that in the end of the day, results matter. It's not about personal preference. It's not about likability. It's execution. And everything you do or test or structure in your organization also ultimately has to produce results. And results is the only measure that tells you if you are successful or not. And there are really no excuses otherwise. That kind of discipline, I don't know if that works in today's world. It worked. I'm a baby boomer. It worked for me. It worked then. I think it works now. I think it's going to work even better as we move forward. You talked about millennials. And we are seeing a new influx. There's some mortgage companies. I'm thinking of Bill Cosgrove's company. I'm thinking Bill Emerson and what they're doing and really opening up the door to bring millennials in. And I know the MBA has some powerful resources available to really help those companies that want to bring the millennials in. What is important from your perspective? What are millennials looking for? What's the most effective way to bring them in? You gave two examples of Bill Cosgrove and Bill Emerson and Chris George, who's on our ladder. I've seen some of their operations, and it's amazing what they do to attract and retain young talent. I will tell you that it's a paradigm shift, and managing millennials is different than how we were managed and what we responded to. So You can't manage in your own image in the world today. And we talk about it a lot, even at MBA, where we're hiring a lot of young people. Quality of life, quality of the work environment is really important. I think we're in a world where, quote, unquote, corporate loyalty is at an all-time low. And the willingness to be mobile and leave jobs for new opportunities for younger people is far greater than it was for us. And, I, David, I don't know how you were. As I said, I started my first company and stayed with them for 17 years. I thought that was a, a brand of honor. That wouldn't happen as frequently today. And so we don't have the expertise at all, but we do have tools that we're trying to learn from. We have, a, we have Impact at MBA, and it's our young professionals organization. And it's both on the commercial multifamily side as well as the residential side. And we're expanding it to our conferences. You'll see it big in Denver at our annual this year. But it's a chance for young professionals to get together in a different environment and over cocktails and et cetera and share and learn in a high-energy environment. And we need more of that because the more young professionals that come to industry events, if they see a bunch of old guys with gray hair, it's not going to look like the dynamic environment that they want to be in. And we have mortgage banking bound educational programs, which we're bringing, we brought to colleges and universities, but we also have our member companies using these educational programs as a way to try to recruit young people into the business and give them a chance to do some online training to see if at least the language of lending is something that's interesting to them. But I honestly look at the other firms that are being really creative. I went to Quicken Loans Operation in Detroit, and it's magnificent to watch. I'm not commenting on the business model or profitability or anything else, but I do know when it comes to appealing and recruiting young people, these guys are very good at it. And they move their desk areas around, their workstations around over time. 
you may show up to work one day and suddenly you're working in a different building on a different floor and it's clear they're, they're making an intentional effort with color and workstation styling and the styling of the building and the environment to keep it attractive and vibrant. So all of this is stuff that we learn from and I think learning is a never-ending effort and especially with an aging management industry, management group in the lending industry, we need to constantly make sure we're trying to learn how to attract, recruit, and retain that generation. I like something that Bill Emerson said. He says, we're a technology company that just happens to be in the real estate lending space. Yeah. And I think there's, we almost start to have to relooking and reframing what we are. There's so many things we could go on and on and talk about. But recently, David, you got the news none of us ever want to get, and that is you have cancer. And it was late stage cancer. And I want to talk about that. But one of the things I want to frame up your comments in is this. I've not seen anybody take on cancer like you did. You talk about many aspects of leadership with the industry, and you've had so many successes. And I don't think you're at the peak of your thing. I think you're at a peak, but it's done very well. Your career's done well, but I think there's more ahead for you, much more. But in the, what many would say at the peak of your career, you got some of the worst news you could have ever gotten. Yeah. And the leadership you have shown through us. And why did you choose to come out as you did? Yeah. So transparent about it. It was August 15th last year when after months of going through tests, biopsies, MRIs, scans, etc., I received a call from my, at the time, medical doctor at a hospital in Washington, D.C., telling me that he would prefer to do this in person, but I was driving home from my lake house with my wife, Mary, and we had him on speakerphone. He goes, you have stage four cancer. And I got to tell you, I'm guaranteed listeners uh, of the show, there are people who have cancer or have had it, and almost everybody has a family member or friend who has had it. But until you personally receive that news, you tend to think you're impenetrable, you're Superman until that time happens. And it was rough. I spent some time trying to think about how to deal with it. I'm in a very public position as I run this large association. I'm speaking or being asked to speak all the time around the country. I do television and radio for our industry, hearings on the Hill and all that kind of thing. And I knew I couldn't keep it quiet. And I had to inform my board, which I had an obligation to. And what finally provoked me to go more vocal is I met a good friend who's a real estate agent with Long and Foster. And she had just finished her initial round of treatments for a similar stage of cancer, different kind of cancer. And she had asked me not to tell anybody and she had kept it quiet from all her friends. I thought that's got to be really hard not to tell anybody. The visible signs of chemotherapy are pretty difficult to hide. You're going to have to go off and hide somewhere. And more importantly, I thought the mistakes I made in timing and uh, identification of this were ones that I could help others not repeat that mistake. And I immediately went public. And people would worry about it. Can I tell others? And I, as David, I was very public out there. I announced it at one of our national conferences that I had it and have since written about it, talked about it, updated friends on Facebook and other social media about the disease. And honestly, I've had two responses. One is I've never realized so many of our members of our industry leadership who've had it and they just don't show the signs. They're either been through it or they've had it in remission. And I thought that was amazing, the strength of so many others who've been through this as well. And the second piece was, as well as to our business, was I've had so many men who are members of the industry, go and get tested. I've had some who've had tests that came back, and they're thankful that I prodded them to do it because they caught certain things earlier than they might otherwise have. I went through it. I went through chemotherapy, which is a horrible process for anybody who's been through it. They know. Horrific. That was followed by surgery, and that was a difficult process. And then 
I just completed 40 days of radiation, going in and getting radiated every day, Monday through Friday, at the hospital, which all of this takes a lot out of you, and you learn a lot about yourself. You would never know. You would never know that you have to take a lot of it because you are continuing to go strong. We see the messages, and I'm blessed to have you as a Facebook friend, so we've tracked this all along, and I don't think there's been a day that we haven't said a prayer for you and continue to just answer you, but you have received a great report. Yeah, so I'll tell you, for anybody who ever has a medical issue, get a second opinion. The hospital that I started with in Washington looked great. They had beautiful treatment facilities and lots of well-known doctors on their staff, the, the treatment they would have given me would have been relatively a death sentence. I ended up going and researching wow. the best medical teams for what I have, and I found, and I'm not one to do great research. I, I often wonder what kind of divine providence intervention happened to have me do the kind of research that resulted in this. But I found this team at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Dr. Ken Pienta, who's the chair of the urology oncology unit at Johns Hopkins. I literally shot him an email in the afternoon, the moment that day I got home from getting that phone call, and within 20 minutes, he was on the phone with me telling me to get up to the hospital the next morning at 7 a.m. and all over it. And they ended up applying a process which is in a clinical trial right now, only 500 men in America with what I have been able to go through this. And it's much more thorough and invasive and a lot more treatment than anybody else has ever had in the effort to try to actually kill it, uh, not just survive it for as long as possible. The good news is uh, I finished the entire process, which included everything I told you, plus some other drugs. And I'm right now, it's undetectable in me. I'm in full remission. You know, I'm not sure how long that's going to last. And the news with cancer today and the way I look at things is cancer is a, a horrible disease. And the good news is that the medical advances are happening at almost lightning speed right now. And so the longer I can yes. keep this in remission and then put it off, there'll be new treatments. And the hope is I get more of a life than I otherwise would have had either medical advances not been the way they were or had I not found Johns Hopkins. And to some people, it freaks you out talking about cancer. Don't worry. I joke about cancer with my coworkers and tell them if they're looking for office space, I may have one available for them sometime. And I, I use all sorts of terrible gallows humor, and it makes them <laughs> cringe, but you got to have an attitude. But you've had... You do, and you've had such an exemplary attitude of leadership through this. And I'm so grateful, David, for you taking a lot of time of your day here to share with us about leadership, your journey through this industry, and a journey through probably one of the most horrific things anyone could go through. My dad survived it. He went through it three times, came back three times, and I'm happy to say he died of old age and not of that same cancer that you had. So, Well, that's my hope, David. I'm hoping and praying for you to enjoy a long and full life, David. Thank you so much for the leadership you bring to our industry. Thank you for spending the time with me that you did today. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Good talking to you. You bet. I get emotional as I just listened to that, realizing we lost such an amazing leader. But more than just losing a leader, we have to keep the Stevens family in our thoughts and prayers, specifically Mary and the kids, as that is an amazing man. And I know you will all want to share this and listen to this multiple times. The wisdom that he shares in this interview is timeless. And that's why we do these interviews on the Licking on Leadership podcast. So when unfortunately someone does pass on, their wisdom lives on their thoughts and how 
they we experience them. And this is just a little snippet of his life, but I'm very grateful that David gave me his time. Again, this was recorded June 27th, 2017. And it was a long time ago, yet there was so much timely information that he shared that we'll want to pass on to future generations. Our thoughts and prayers now turn to you, Mary, and the kids. We are will be always indebted to you for sharing your husband as much as you did with our industry. We're grateful for him. We're grateful for his legacy. And you will all be in our thoughts and prayers. Thank you, all listeners, for listening to this and sharing it.